Let's go to our Lord in prayer. I earnestly ask of you, Lord, that as we reopen your scriptures, that we do so by faith and looking unto you to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. That as your word goes forth through the means of teaching and preaching, Holy Father, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus that we will hear it effectually by the Spirit's power, sanctifying us by the truth of your word and thereby conforming us evermore from one degree of glory to another into the very image of your Son, Jesus the Christ, our great Lord, God, and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. I do invite you to take God's word and let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 1, even though our text for exposition is verses 13 through 16. Let's start at verse 1 so that verses 13 through 16 are fixed in their proper context. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so reads the infallible, inerrant word of the living eternal God. Great Britain during the first 40 years of the 18th century 
has been viewed as one of the darkest, if not the darkest period in England's modern history. At every level and on every front, England was heading fast toward a cultural upheaval and revolution that would have rivaled the French Revolution of 1789 with ease. And this could be demonstrated in three ways. First, politically. Under the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, Great Britain's leading politicians were men who lived in a morass of corruption, theft, immorality, and deception. In fact, the roots of such a dark political climate could be traced to the restored monarchy in 1660 where licentiousness would become the rule of the day. Second, in legislation. England came under terrible reproach. Let me illustrate this by two of her greatest sins which her government made into law. First of all, there was the transatlantic slave trade. This industry became England's most cherished pride that would garner the country a worldwide reputation as holding the lion's share of any nation at that time. But this trade was one of the greatest violations of God's moral law. God's mandate to love our neighbor as ourselves did not exist in any category under this evil enterprise. Furthermore, the fact that what was involved in this slave trade was man-stealing, which God flat out condemns in his law. Kidnapping, murder, and the base dehumanization of men, women, and children were the chief hallmarks of this diabolical and accursed industry. Yet England turned a blind eye to such things and simply counted these sins as necessary for business. And if legal slavery wasn't bad enough, and indeed a bad enough bane on England, there was also its crazed lust for capital punishment. England had legislated over a hundred laws that would incur capital punishment for all classes and, believe it or not, for all ages. In fact, capital punishment was so regularly enforced in Great Britain that public hangings became the popular entertainment with up to 15 people being executed nearly every day. Needless to say, English law in the 18th century turned English society into barbarianism. Finally, there was the religious and moral climate. Christianity in England from 1700 to 1740 was nothing but an awful parody compared to the real thing. Regarding the population as a whole in this context, Arnold Dallymore noted of this period, large numbers of the people, both high and low, believing Christianity to be false, dropped all pretense of religious profession. The majority of the populace, however, in keeping with the belief that the Church of England was a necessary support of the monarchy and a key factor in maintaining the peace of the realm, asserted that, despite its outworn dogmas, it ought to be retained. To such persons, its rituals were but empty formality. But as to the churches themselves, J.C. Ryle once described their condition in this way. The Church of England existed in those days with her admirable articles, her time-honored liturgy, her parochial systems, her Sunday services, and her 10,000 clergy. 
the nonconformist body, that's Baptists, Presbyterians, etc., they existed with all with its hardly worn liberty and its free pulpit. But one account unhappily may be given of both parties. They existed, but they could hardly be said to have lived. They did nothing. They were sound asleep. In fact, under the same point, J.C. Ryle would go on to observe that sermons everywhere he said were little better than miserable moral essays utterly devoid of anything likely to awaken, convert, or save souls. Indeed, Ryle concluded that if there was one thing that both the Church of England and nonconformist churches agreed on at this period, it was, quote, to let the devil alone and to do nothing for hearts and souls, close quote. But of course, such spiritual indifference, such lethargy, apathy of this sort, should come as no surprise when you consider that natural religion was the rule of faith it ascribed to live by. This religion went by the more popular name as deism, which basically taught that whatever God there may be, he is nothing more than the first cause, hence a force that made the world the way a clockmaker makes a clock. In other words, having set its mechanism to operate according to certain laws, he just winds up the clock and lets it run. Thus, with deism, while God's existence was not denied, yet his personal, ongoing intervention in the world he made was absolutely rejected. With a special denial to man's need for personal salvation by God through Christ. Deism, therefore, was the apostate's religion. So then the Christian faith was all but dead in the first half of 18th century England. Moreover, combined with the dead faith, the moral climate was anything but moral. Again, quoting from Ryle, dueling, adultery, fornication, gambling, swearing, Sabbath-breaking, and drunkenness were hardly regarded as vices at all. They were fashionable practices of people in the highest ranks of society, and no one was thought the worse for indulging in them. But without question, England's greatest demoralizing vice was what became known as the gin craze. Now listen to this. Every sixth house in London had become a gin shop, and the nation, the nation was in an uncontrollable orgy of gin drinking. A contemporary of this period lamented, Gin has made the English people what they never were before, cruel and inhumane. So here was England in the first half of the 18th century, spiritually, morally, politically bankrupt from the pulpit to parliament. But in 1740, God stepped in, as it were. And God brought forth a cataclysmic change that would save England from an oncoming revolution of epic proportions. This would be known as the Evangelical Awakening. And this awakening would be characterized by four works of grace that brought both the church and the nation of Great Britain into a long season of spiritual revival. These works of grace were as follows. First, there was spirit-anointed preaching. Men like George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, Hal Harris, Daniel Rowland, 
They were God's chief instruments in setting England ablaze with powerful, authoritative, effectual gospel preaching. Second, there was fervent evangelistic enterprises. Like the apostolic church of old, it could well be said of the preachers during this awakening that daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Third, there were massive conversions to Christ. For example, after one week of preaching in Moorfields, which was a park in London, George Whitfield received 10,000 letters of conversion. Now, what is that? That's 10,000 men and women who wrote in testimony of having come to faith in Christ under Whitfield's preaching. That kind of event was the norm during this period. Finally, there was a faithful gathering and building up of the saints. Men and women were not left to themselves after conversion, but gathered together to form new churches all over England. England, therefore, was delivered from inevitable disaster because so many of its citizens had become Christians. Hence, their changed lives by God's grace would end up changing the spiritual and moral direction of the country as a whole. But the change effected in 18th century England by such a massive number of new believers in Christ Beloved, listen, this is the same kind of change we should expect to see on a much smaller scale with every true Christian within their own circle of influence. Now, with this in mind, I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This passage of Scripture is part of a larger context in which the Lord Jesus is unpacking the nature and character of every true Christian by giving us snapshots of various graces which make up the fruit of a life which has been saved by God's grace. For example, in verses 3 through 9 here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches us that a Christian is someone who is humble and broken over their sin, yielding their lives to God's will, craving after God's righteous standard, merciful toward others, devoted to God with an unrivaled passion, and pursuing peace with all men. But the culminating result of such a life like this, living in a sinful world, will not be applause, but persecution. As Jesus reveals, the faithful Christian is the afflicted Christian by a world that hates righteousness and loves sin. Yet on the heels of how the world impacts a Christian via persecution, here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus declares how a Christian is to affect the world as he is being persecuted. In other words, what is to be our response as believers in Christ to a hostile world? Or to say it another way, in view of our nature and identity as Christians, that is being humble, meek, merciful, holy, what is our relationship to the world? How should our new life in Christ affect the world around us? While the world will persecute us, while the world will harass us for our faith in Christ, what are we to be in response to the world? The answer to these questions is actually the context of our text here in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And the way in which the way in which Jesus answers these questions is by the use of two metaphors, salt and light. 
This is what we are as Christians to the world around us every day and in every place. We are salt and light. But what does it mean to be salt and light as a Christian? Well, this is what I want us to unpack from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So to begin with, let's notice first the Christian as salt. The Christian as salt. Look with me at verse 13. You are the salt of the world, the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, to begin with, we must understand that when our Lord declares that you are the salt of the earth, the pronoun you is emphatic. This is also true in verse 14 when Jesus says you are the light of the world. The point Christ is making by putting a special emphasis on these pronouns is to say to his disciples, is to say to his church, you and you only are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're it. You're it. The salt of the earth, the light of the world. Moreover, the verb are, A-R-E, are, that is a present indicative. This means that Jesus is not commanding us here to do something, that he is declaring what we already are as the result of his saving grace. Furthermore, due to the present tense, listen to this, due to the present tense, we are always salt and light. Always. This is who we are. So then as a consequence of what Christ has described as the nature and character of a true Christian, in verses 3 through 9 of Matthew 5, every Christian, therefore, is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In fact, again, it is only Christians who are salt and light in relation to the world you understand that? No one else holds this claim but believers in Christ. No one but believers. Now, as the salt of the earth, what is Jesus describing about his people in relation to the world? Well, as you can imagine, there have been many ideas suggested as to the meaning of this metaphor, the most, but the most convincing and widely held interpretation is that as the salt of the earth... Christians function in the world as a moral and spiritual preservative. A moral and spiritual preservative. In other words, in the same way that salt primarily functions as an antiseptic to prevent putrefaction, such as rubbing salt into meat to preserve it against those agencies that would putrefy the meat, God takes his people and rubs them, as it were, into the fabric of society to work as a divine antiseptic. This means then that the very presence of the church, the very presence of the church functions to prevent and retard the moral and spiritual decay of the world. God intends, therefore, the most powerful of all restraints within a sinful society to be his own 
Redeemed, regenerate, righteous people. As one writer put it, Christians are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. But to understand our identity as Christians in this way certainly implies that our initial response to the world is very negative. Our initial response to the world is very negative. As the salt of the earth, we stand in opposition to the evils of this fallen world. Martin Luther spoke to this fact when he said, salting has to bite. Salting has to bite. The world in its sinfulness should feel the sting of their conscience whenever they encounter the church. Why is that? It's because we are exposing and denouncing their unbelief and rebellion against God just, listen, just by the mere fact of who we are as Christians in addition to what we say or do. Thus, our influence as the church has a very negative impact on the world. Jesus did not say we are the honey of the world. No, he said we're the salt of the earth. We don't give the world sugar, we give them salt. So then practically, our very presence manifested by our words and deeds is designed by God to make our circle of influence less fertile ground for ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, this doesn't mean that we have the power in ourselves to regenerate the people around us. We know better than that. But it does mean that by living a godly life, we will make it more difficult for sinful attitudes and habits and words to become the norm among our family and friends and co-workers and culture at large. This is how the church functions as the salt of the earth. Observing this fact even further, but with a searching application, John R. W. Stott once wrote this. He said, Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad... We Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? What Sod is clearly challenging us with is the fact that God has not called us as his church to be completely and totally isolated from the world. The church is not meant to be shut up in monasteries and convents. We are called to be in the world, though we're not of the world. But as we are in the world, one dynamic of our, of our place and purpose is to counter the ungodly culture that surrounds us. And this, again, is our function as salt. This, of course, is what happened in the aforementioned evangelical awakening that took, that took Great Britain by storm in the 18th century. Understand, as more and more people came to faith in Christ, out of every class of British society, 
the moral and spiritual rottenness of that nation began to be greatly hindered. English Christians were being salt rubbed into the meat of their godless culture and the evil of that culture was experiencing a dramatic retarding effect. So understand this. Despite how insignificant you may think your influence is in this world, dear Christian, think again. Think again. You and you only are the salt of the earth. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing as a believer in Christ, you alone are the salt of the earth. This world with all its moral corruption and spiritual idolatry has no other force to stem its decay and oppose its evil than the church of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you feel the weightiness of this calling and responsibility? Do you feel that? This is why there should be Christians serving in politics and law enforcement and education and medicine, construction and farming. God wants to rub us into the very fabric of these vocations and many others so that the growth of wickedness will be significantly impeded. This means that the name of Jesus Christ will not be as easily blasphemed when unbelievers are in our presence, nor abusive language so freely used. Furthermore, those with whom we work will develop something of a conscience about the standard of their work as they would see us working not to please men, but Christ our Lord. Moreover, a general respect for others will be more common as, as the world would see us loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. The point is, when you are the salt of the earth, you preserve society. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the principle of cellular infiltration. The principle of cellular infiltration. In the same way that a little salt, doesn't take much, in the same way that a little salt can affect a great mass because its essential quality permeates everything. So we as Christians are to permeate this sinful world with holiness, righteousness, and godliness, thus controlling its putrefaction and pollution and rottenness. This is our great purpose. This is our great responsibility as the salt of the earth. But on the heels of declaring what we are as Christians, that is being salt of the earth, we also need to notice in our text that Jesus warns us, he admonishes us against losing our usefulness as salt. Look at what he says. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, to really appreciate this warning, we need to recognize that salt can never lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is a very stable chemical compound, which is resistant to nearly every attack. However, salt can become contaminated by mixture with impurities, and then it becomes useless, even dangerous. 
And this is the great point behind our Lord's warning. As Christians, we can lose our value, we can lose our effectiveness if we permit sin and worldliness to contaminate our lives. Just as salt can become tasteless when contaminated with other minerals. In application to this warning, consider these sobering words from John MacArthur. With great responsibility, there is often great danger. We cannot be an influence for purity in the world if we have compromised our own purity. We cannot sting the world's conscience if we continually go against our own. We cannot stimulate thirst for righteousness if we have lost our own. We cannot be used of God to retard the corruption of sin in the world if our own lives become corrupted by sin. To lose our saltiness is not to lose our salvation, but it is to lose our effectiveness and to become disqualified for service. And he references there 1 Corinthians 9.27. So, beloved, while we are the salt of the earth, okay, while we are that by virtue of what we have become as Christians, yet we have a grave responsibility to live up to that divine identity. Otherwise, we will make our place and purpose in this world to be utterly pointless if we deny what God has made us as the salt of the earth. But in addition to being the salt of the earth, our Lord goes on to declare in the rest of our text that we're also the light of the world. We are the light of the world. And this leads us to consider our next major point, the Christian as light. Look with me in verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, here again... I must emphasize the force of what Christ is declaring, that his followers, his church, are the only light of the world. We're it. We alone as Christians are the light of the world. What should really strike us about this identification is that where there is no Christian presence or witness in this world, what are you left with? You're left with nothing but darkness. Nothing but darkness. Just pause and think for a moment of that 1040 window in the world where there is no Christian witness, no Christian church whatsoever, whatsoever. And you've got, you've got millions of people who have never heard the gospel. They know nothing nothing of the truth of Christ and they are in a morass of spiritual darkness of moral darkness which is one reason why when Christian missionaries attempt to go into the 1040 window they are going into the most dangerous most hostile places to the gospel in the entire world because of the darkness Where there's no Christian presence, where there's no witness in this world, you're left with nothing but darkness. So that means that the darkness of sin and unbelief 
will grow from bad to worse. Because there's nothing there to counter it. There's nothing to expose it. Nor to reveal how to be redeemed from it. Now, under this last statement, we should have a clue as to how we function as the light of the world. We not only expose what's in the darkness. We do that, but that's not all that we do. Namely, the nature and effect of sin. We not only reveal what that is, but we also manifest God's only provision for escaping the darkness which is through his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, as the light of the world, Christians reveal by their life and witness man's fundamental problem and the only solution to that problem, which is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our function, therefore, as the light of the world is largely positive and thus redemptive. Regarding this, explaining this in contrast to our purpose of salt, one writer noted this. Listen to this. Salt is more the indirect influence of the gospel, while light is more its direct communication. Salt works primarily through our living, while light works primarily through what we teach and preach. Salt is largely negative. It can retard corruption, but it cannot change corruption into incorruption. Light is more positive and not only reveals what is wrong and false, but helps produce what is righteous and true. So then when we think of ourselves as the light of the world, we need to understand that it is both, listen very closely, I'm going to repeat this, it is both the fruit of God's redeeming grace in us combined with the gospel entrusted to us, which is the light we are manifesting to the world. Listen to that again. As the light of the world, we need to understand that it is both the fruit of God's redeeming grace in us combined with the gospel entrusted to us, which is the light we are manifesting to the world. We see this fact framed in the form of both affirmation and command. In Ephesians chapter 5, 8 through 14. Listen to what Paul writes concerning this. Ephesians chapter 5, 8 through 14. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, take note of what we're being told here about the Christian in this passage. No longer darkness, but light in the Lord. Therefore, we must live up to that identity by doing what? By taking no part in the deeds of darkness, but exposing the truth of what they really are, while at the same time calling those in darkness to come out by turning to Christ. This is our function as the light of the world. But now going back to our text, notice... Since we are the light of the world, Jesus says that, listen to this, Jesus says that giving light will be inevitable. 
giving light will be inevitable. What does our Lord say? He says, a city, a city set on a hill cannot, cannot be what? It cannot be hidden. As impossible as it is to conceal a city set on a hill, it will be just as impossible to conceal who we are as Christians and to whom we belong if, in fact, we are living faithfully to Christ. Not only that, but our Lord calls us to consider another example. He says, Nor do people light a lamp and put, a, put it under a basket, but on a stand. And the lamp does what? Jesus says it gives light to all in the house. What's the point of this illustration? Well, it's really very simple. Our purpose as a follower of Christ is to give light wherever we are in the world. That's the point of the whole illustration. To to not give light is to deny who we are and to whom we belong, who is Christ. Leon Morris, he put it this way. He wrote, giving light is not an option, so to speak, which the disciple may or may not choose. It is part of being a disciple. It is the nature of light to shine. And when people have received the light of the gospel, they will shine in a dark world. Hence, in verse 16, our Lord makes this application. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here is our great calling and responsibility as the light of the world. Jesus commands us, let your light shine before others. That is an aorist imperative. So here's how it can be rendered from the Greek. Start now. Do not delay Don't conceal who you are by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Right now, start letting your light shine before others. Do it now. Do it now. That's the force of the heiress imperative. But for what purpose do we let our light shine? It's twofold. From the lesser to the greater. First, Jesus says that they may see your good works. That they may see your good works. Now, now, what are our good works? Well, in the context of Matthew chapter 5, let's keep this in the strict immediate context of this chapter. It is the nature and character of who we are as Christians. In other words, those snapshots you see in the Beatitudes. Humble, broken over sin, meek, craving for righteousness, merciful, holy, peacemaking... Okay, those are your good works. What God's grace has made us in Christ should never be concealed, but made conspicuously visible for everyone to see. In other words, there's no such thing as a closet Christian. No such thing. No such thing. Haven't you ever met... I'm sure you have. Haven't you ever met people who say, well, my faith is private? That's just between me and God? Hogwash. If you're a true Christian, you're the light of the world. 
Don't keep it to yourself. You're not supposed to. You are to come out and let everybody see who you really are. No shame in it. Should be no fear in it. No, your faith is not a private thing. It's very public. It is very public. And that is very clearly what we're being taught here. Yet the purpose of showing our good works is not to point the world to us, however, <laughs> and say, look at me. Look at me. In other words, there are no celebrities in the kingdom. No. The supreme purpose for letting our light shine, what does Jesus say? What's the supreme purpose? So that God will be glorified. So they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Listen again to Leon Morris on this point. The good works are to be seen not in order that the doers may be congratulated as fine, upstanding servants of God, but in such a way that the observers will give glory to your Father. There is to be no parade of virtue, no attempt to win praise for oneself. It is the light that is to shine, not those privileged to be the bearers of the light. People will always see the deeds that, that disciples do, and disciples are to make sure that when that takes place, it is the light that they will see, and that they will see it in such a way that they will praise God. They will praise God. So, beloved, in view of what we have heard and learned today, from Matthew 5, 13 through 16, let me ask you the question that this entire text is forcing us to ask. How salty are you? And how visible is the light of Christ shining through your life? How salty are you and how visible is the light of Christ shining through through your life. Let me help you out here with some other questions. Do you, does, does your life, does your life oppose sin or pander to it? Does your life oppose sin or pander to it? Do you make unbelievers uncomfortable because of your faithfulness and obedience to Christ? Now, there are some Christians that make unbelievers uncomfortable for very obnoxious reasons. So we have to be clear. Because of your obedience and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, do you make unbelievers uncomfortable? They should feel very uncomfortable in your presence because of that. How freely, how freely do unbelievers sin in your presence by their words and deeds? Does your life retard their corruption? And 
do you make the light of the gospel and a godly life shine conspicuously and unashamedly before the world? Or do you conceal the truth of who you are in Christ? Remember, as Christians, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is who we are. You understand? It's not what we do, it's who we are. But we have a responsibility to be faithful to who we are as salt and light. We have a responsibility. Our saltiness can be contaminated by corruption and sin. Our light can be very obscured by our unfaithfulness and compromise. Indeed, I'll say this, that for many Christians... For many, for many Christians, the reason they don't let the light of Christ shine through them is because they fear man more than they fear God. The fear of man ensnares them. Which is also the reason why many Christians do not witness to unbelievers. It is the fear of man. So, let me ask you again. How salty are you? How salty are you? And how visible is the light of Christ shining through your life? This is the great searching question which Matthew 5, 13 through 16 presses on the conscience of every Christian. Beloved, are we living up to this responsibility? Are we living up to this divine calling? May the word of God, by the grace of God... Search us all this day and enable us to see the truth of who we really are as Christians who are called salt of the earth and the light of the world. And brothers and sisters, where we need to repent, and I'm, I'm pretty certain we all need to repent in some different area here. But where we need to repent, then by God's grace... May we repent and do so today for the glory of God. Do not deny what God's grace has made you. Do not conceal the truth of who you really are because, because you're afraid of what others may say or think. You're fearful of well, will they like me or not? Will they approve of me or not? Who cares? Really? Who cares? And I'm saying that personally as somebody who in my natural temperament craves the approval and recognition of others. So you can imagine what i got to put to death in my life. Remember who you are by the grace of God. Remember who you are. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, it is astounding to us when we truly consider and take with all seriousness
what your word teaches and reveals to us, Lord, about what your grace has made us in Christ. And how astonishing it is to us, Father, to realize that as your people, born again by the Spirit of God, brought in a spiritual, eternal union with Christ our Savior and Lord, that as we are in this fallen world, we are the only salt of the earth, the only light of the world. This is who you have made us in Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask, make us feel the weightiness of this truth today. And Lord, where we all need to repent in whatever way, in whatever degree that is, as salt and light where we have allowed perhaps our lives to be contaminated, be, to be corrupted in any way by sin, by worldliness, where perhaps, Lord, we have even out of the fear of man concealed the truth of your saving gospel and thereby concealed the light that we are in the Lord, proclaiming your praises as you called us to do. We trust in you today for the grace to repent of all such sin and to be renewed by your grace, Lord, in the truth of who we are as salt and light and thereby to be more and more salty, to be more and more visible in showing and shining the light of the truth of Christ Jesus our Lord by his saving gospel. We trust in you, Holy Father, for everything we need in and by and through Christ our Lord for these things to our greater sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we ask these things for his sake. Amen.